This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mysteries with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former Russian KGB spy. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Sample, on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the super awesome science show. Stress. It's more than just a feeling. It can be an all-encompassing journey into a personal hell. We all go through it. And worst of all, it's contagious. On this week's show, we're going to look at how we share stress with one another. We'll explore how the feeling we associate with compassion might make things worse. We'll also find out that you can smell and react to stress thanks to a certain part of the body. And in our SAS class, we'll find out how the spread of stress is like an infectious disease and how the most likely targets are the people closest to you. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to take you deep into the brain to show you just how stress is far more than a personal struggle, but one we can all feel. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. You're having a great day. The sun is shining. The people have been all warm and pleasant to you. You succeeded at all your day's tasks. Everything seems to be on your side. You're looking forward to a calm night reflecting on one of the better days of your life. You simply don't want this good feeling to end. Then, someone new walks into the room and things change. You say, hi, how's it going? Or maybe the words we all like to say, how was your day? And so it begins. They slept in late. They missed their usual commute. Worker's school was a complete disaster. They spilled a drink and stained their clothes. They got into an argument with a colleague. A deadline was moved up and they had to stay late. The world is a dumpster fire and they are caught in its flames. All of a sudden your day has been turned upside down. All of those good feelings are gone and you're filled with a rise of emotions. Your heart starts to race. You either have to get away or make this stop. Eventually, you have no choice but to say, You're stressing me out! I'm sure everyone has had a day like this, even though we might wish we hadn't. Yet, this reaction to stress is programmed into our biology. It's an extension of what is known as the fight-or-flight response. When we encounter a situation that offers us a challenge, we have one of two choices. We can either fight or run away to protect ourselves. There are some warning signs that you can look for when it comes to the fight or flight response. 
rapid heart rate, clammy skin, a knot in the stomach, more shallow breathing, a sense of being trapped. They're all signals that your body is getting ready to deal with the stress. As to what is causing these symptoms, it's known scientifically as the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, although everyone calls it the HPA. The process of reacting to stress is incredibly complicated and the HPA has one essential role, and that is to signal our bodies that stress is present. We sense the challenge within milliseconds, and within minutes, that HPA is gearing us up to face the situation by producing a stress hormone known as cortisol. Making cortisol is a normal part of life. When we wake up in the morning, our bodies begin to produce the stuff as light intensity increases. It gets us ready for the day. But cortisol should also be made slowly so that you don't overreact. If you happen to be in complete darkness and someone turns on a bright light right in your face, surprise, surprise, it's time for the fight or flight response. Another example of a major rush of cortisol occurs when we see a crush or someone famous we're really into. You better believe that if Beyonce, Idris Elba, or those BTS boys approached us, the cortisol levels would shoot up like a rocket. And then there's the job interview. If you've ever had one, you know it's stressful. There's even a standardized test method known as the Trier Social Stress Test Protocol, which is based on being interviewed for a position. It's guaranteed to send that HPA axis into cortisol overdrive. The HPA axis is incredibly important for those situations when the body is unsure of what's to come. But when we encounter someone we know and care about, there's really no need for a fight or flight response. So why are we lighting up the sky with our cortisol levels? It's because of an emotion we normally don't associate with raising stress, but reducing it. Empathy. When you see someone going through a hard time, you tend to feel for that person. As that happens, you begin to associate yourself with the stressful situation, and before you know it, your cortisol levels increase. While this is more common in those who are in a relationship, about 10% of us out there might go through the same process when it comes to seeing strangers. Figuring out the link between empathy and stress is not an easy task. After all, they are controlled by different areas of the brain. To help us figure out how these two can be linked, I've reached out to Dr. Stephanie Preston at the University of Michigan. She has been looking at how empathy and stress are linked and has the perfect example all of us can relate to. Public speaking. Lots of people find getting up to speak in front of others stressful, but you found in a study that the audience can also get stressed by simply watching that person. How is that happening? It's a very exciting finding, but I think you can maybe um, imagine how this might happen if you've ever been watching a public speaker who's really nervous and they're swallowing and their voice is cracking and you become a little nervous for them or it's embarrassing or it's stressful to watch somebody go through that experience. So we had this intuition because we were running experiments where you had to stress somebody out and then see how they perform on a task after. For example, how they choose gambles, risky gambles or um, change their money choices after they get stressed. But it was actually stressful as the experimenter to put people into those situations. So we thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to take the cortisol levels, this stress hormone that we measure, from the experimenters. 
to see the degree to which they were also getting stressed during these experiments. And lo and behold, sure enough, the experimenters were getting stressed and in a way that matches the degree to which the the subject was stressed. So for example, if you were giving the speech, but you didn't feel very stressed, I wouldn't feel very stressed. But if the next subject was highly stressed, then I would feel highly stressed. So we're mirroring the degree to which the other person is stressed, even in our um, bodily hormones, which we don't have very good intuitions about. So it's happening at this very low level. And it's even modulated by the degree to which you normally feel empathy for people in daily life. So people are more empathic, have this stronger concordance with the other person than people who are not very empathic in daily life. They're not feeling the concern and the sympathy with other people. In an earlier show, we actually talked about how natural disasters could bring about empathy and even altruistic behavior in people. Do you think that this ability to share stress may have what you might call uh, a pro-social value? I definitely do. It's going to have benefits and costs, right? Because it's going to be damaging to your health if you're constantly surrounded by somebody who's highly stressed, even if, say, your job's not stressful. If your spouse's job is stressful, some of this is going to wear off on you, right? But on the other hand, if we become distressed by the plight of other people, people in need, people in natural disasters, then that emotion is a form of motivation for us to come to the rescue of these people, to give them money, to provide aid. People who experience more distress over things like natural disasters, they actually give more money and they volunteer more, for example, in organizations that help these natural disasters. And there's other kinds of people who don't get very distressed when they see things like a natural disaster, an accident, an injury. And these people in real life are not giving as much money to these charitable organizations. They're not volunteering as much time. They don't support these kind of issues. And they even self-report feeling less emotional and less empathic about other people. So even though stress as a word has this very negative connotation, it really does have good motivational value in the moment. It's bad to experience it chronically. That's bad for your health. But in the moment, cortisol as a stress hormone is actually a good thing in that it, you know, motivates you to action. I find it crazy how stressed I get when I'm watching my favorite sports team or or how much I truly care about my favorite television or movie character. Now, you have looked at this in the medical environment, and I'm wondering if you can tell us what you found so that might help explain why I want to tear up my armchair while I'm watching the game or using up that tissue box while I'm watching the last few minutes of The Notebook. Right. I mean, what you're giving are very good examples of our subjective awareness of when we're drawn in by the emotions of somebody else. Um, In a movie, we have no goals of our own. We don't have an agenda. We don't have anything to do. We don't have to monitor our response. So we're able to fully engross and identify with this character on the screen, which has um, adaptive value because, for example, When you're not watching a movie, let's say hundreds of thousands of years ago, you're watching your own children, you're watching your group mates, you're watching the people in your own social group, you know, cheering when they have a successful event, crying when they're distressed and they need you to come to their aid. And so you can participate in these events in a way that's collaborative 
and you can help each other and you can share in the joys of these successes, which is a really positive thing, right? In your social in-group environment. And so it's just kind of like um, a side effect that we can do this also in movies or watching sports. And they even have shown in brain scans, if I just tell you that this other person is from your favorite soccer team or your opponent soccer team, you show more brain activity in the pain areas of your brain when somebody from your own team is being injured, right? So your empathic pain is actually even higher in your brain when you're watching somebody from your own sports team, which means like because you've identified with them, they're included in your in-group in your mind, even if some of these people that you're watching on TV, you'll never meet, you might not know them, they're not even real people, they're characters, but it's a side effect of the fact that we've evolved this very adaptive tendency to resonate with the emotions of those around us. You have a theory about this, if I'm correct, because you wrote a fascinating perspective in 2013 on how this idea of widespread empathy may have that origin simply in the need to care for our children. Can you explain that a little? It's it's returning to this idea that empathy or altruism or this urge to help others doesn't necessarily need to be this highly cognitive, reflexive process. You know, like sometimes people say, I put myself into the shoes of the other person and they're imagining this very cognitive, difficult event, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, all mammals care for their offspring. Most mammals care for their offspring and they're called altricial, right? Because it takes a really long time for a mammal, especially a human mammal or a primate mammal to be um, on its own. So they're helpless for a really long time. So we evolved this capacity, the theory argues, to be highly sensitive to the cues of need and the cues of distress in others because it's critical to the survival of your own offspring. Because if you weren't monitoring them constantly, paying attention to their needs, feeling highly motivated when you saw them distressed or struggling, then they wouldn't have survived quite literally. So you don't even need a lot of conscious deliberation. Like a, a good example I can think of is if you see a kid on the corner of a busy street and a little kid might go and step out or, you know, start to go in the street. And when you hear a car coming, you'll just reflexively grab for them. Right. And you won't worry. Oh, what will people think around me if they see me acting in this, you know, strange and sudden way? <laughs> you just act, you know, it's immediate. And so this this urge to respond is what I think evolved from the need to care for our own helpless offspring long, long ago in um, evolutionary history of mammals. Do you feel that there is any way that we might be able to control empathy? Well, we do actually have a lot of control over the degree to which this is instinctual or the intensity of it, how drawn in we get by it. For example, there's hundreds of studies in child development showing that the way you're raised, the way your parents talk to you, the way you're treated as an infant or a young child can change how empathic you feel later in life, right? So you have control over the trajectory of your whole developmental period of how this becomes expressed. But even in the moment, people have a lot of control over the degree to which they feel empathy or they act altruistically because they don't pay attention to cues that they don't want to be drawn in by, right? So you have control over where you direct your attention, 
while it's very difficult in the moment to stare at somebody who's crying without feeling for them or feeling upset or kind of wanting to do something, get away or go toward them, you can just not look at them. (laughs) And then you avoid the whole situation, right? (laughs) And so people use that very strategically. They're walking down the street. They don't have any money. They don't want to, you know, deal with the homeless person. They just don't look down, right? They don't look at them. So especially when people have their own goals, something that they're trying to achieve in the moment, something they want out of the situation, something they're going toward that would be, you know, detracted from by acting empathically, they just allocate their attention in a way that doesn't draw them in. I think that's the number one way that people um, prevent themselves from being drawn in when they don't think it's a good idea. But you definitely would not recommend wearing blindfolds like that Bird Box movie. No, I wouldn't recommend that. I don't think it's very practical, but also, you know, you might add it's important in many social situations to be attending to these cues because we're interdependent with the welfare of the people around us. So, for example, if your um, romantic partner or your family member is upset and you're trying to avoid them, you can't be there to support them and they need you and you're part of that support system. So um, we're all, to the degree we're all interdependent with one another, it is important to be paying attention to these cues, even if it causes some kind of emotional engagement in the moment. It's easy to appreciate how seeing or hearing about stress can lead to empathy. It's a natural response that has been developed through evolution. But in 2009, a different means of achieving empathy was discovered by researchers in Germany. They found out there was another sense that could detect stress leading to an empathic response, our sense of smell. As we learned in our Smells of the Season episode, the body can react based on what we pick up in the air and invoke a variety of responses from movement to emotions. It turns out odors can also impact our ability to feel for someone. To test it out, all the German researchers needed was the aroma of a stressed out person in a test tube for people to feel empathy. As to where the smell is coming from, You don't have to think too hard. Just raise your arms. It's right there. It's your eau de stress parfum. The armpits are known for their smell, although most of the time we think of that odor in a bad light. We tend to believe it's offensive and not to be shared in public. Now, that may be the case in our modern day world, but remember, we also happen to be mammals and we have the ability to share our situation chemically through odors. Many mammals have areas that specifically form these chemicals to share with others. Probably the most well-known of these are the anal glands in dogs. It's why they tend to greet each other with a butt sniff. They're trying to figure out how the other is doing. As for humans, thankfully, our hub happens to be those pits. Although we don't use this type of signaling much in modern society, in many traditional cultures, the armpits are a source of great information. Back in 2009, researchers had no real clue as to why the smell of armpit sweat could lead to the initiation of empathy. All they could say was that feelings had a smell, and that upon smelling those feelings, we tend to change our behavior. Thankfully, some researchers have veered deeper into the brain of mice to figure out the mechanism and provide us with some answers. One advancement came last year from my next guest, 
as his lab found out, the smell of stress has a direct impact on another stress center, and this in turn can make both animals stressed out. His name is Dr. J.D. Baines, and he is a professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Calgary. He has spent his career unveiling the mysteries behind stress so we can all appreciate what is happening deep inside our brains. His technique is best described by his Twitter handle, Stressinomics. You have to tell me why the handle Stressinomics, other than the fact that it sounds awesome. We're a lab that's interested in stress, and we're interested in synapses, which are the connections between uh, neurons in the brain. And we are particularly interested in how stress changes these synapses, and so we study stress and synapses together. And so it seemed like in the omics world, putting stress and synapses together into one word made sense. What we now know is that smell really is a powerful trigger for the brain. Uh, we've talked about this in the past, but... The idea that we can smell someone else and start to feel their stress just seems absolutely fascinating. Like, how did you conduct the experiments to explore this? Yeah, so our, um, our experiments are conducted in mice. And so the experiment is a very straightforward experiment. Um, so as I said earlier, we're interested in how stress changes synapses or the connections between cells. And so what we did was we took a, a single mouse and we uh, stressed it and then brought it back uh, to its home where, there, where it had uh, a sibling um, mouse and then allowed the two mice to kind of hang out and investigate and explore each other for a while. And what we found is that the second mouse, the one that wasn't stressed but just could explore the stressed mouse, started to show the same features of stress as the one that was actually stressed. Now, when you did that, you actually suggested that there might be something called alert pheromone that's kind of doing the trick. Yep, that's right. Yeah, so animals release um, uh, this alert alarm pheromone or a danger signal. And just about every animal, and it doesn't even have to be animals, even, you know, if you go back to plants evolutionarily, uh, if, you, if a plant is damaged, it starts releasing a, a chemical, which is a danger chemical. Um, uh, worms do it, ants do it, mice do it. Um, just about every animal that you look at releases a, a chemical that signals danger. And evolutionarily, uh, the reason why you'd want this is because you want to alert others around you uh, of a potential danger. And so I think it's a, it's a very powerful signature. In humans, most investigations that have looked at signals like this um, have found some evidence for a, a type of stress signal, they've called it. What's really intriguing in humans, though, is that exposure to this kind of signature chemical changes your physiology, your heart rate and blood pressure, but you don't actually have to consciously be aware that you're detecting it. That's amazing. So we can start to have a triggering of our HPA axis leading to the cortisol and the stress without even realizing that it's there. And, and I mean, I know that that's sort of how we talk about pheromones with other, um, you know, neurological systems. But you're suggesting, based on what you've seen, that we may also have um, that, that stress response without even realizing it. 
Yeah, absolutely correct. And and there's and there's good basis for it in the anatomy of the brain. So there's really uh, there's some some evidence that there are direct connections from the olfactory bulb, uh, this area that that processes signals from your nose right down to the areas that we look at, the hypothalamus, which are well below the cortex. So this is not where you have conscious processing, but this is what controls the kind of automatic parts uh, of your brain and nervous system. Now, one of the things that you mentioned in this particular paper is that female mice seem to be more affected by this phenomenon than male mice. And and you say it's due to something called the tend and befriend strategy. H- how does that work and how does it apply to, you know, stress being transferred from one to another? Yeah, um, so I'll just back up a little bit. So the, the females and the males seem to transmit the stress equally effectively. But in the females... If you have a stressed female that goes back to a cage with an unstressed partner, the interaction with with the partner seems to erase the consequences of stress on the original stressed female. But we don't see that in the males. And so we think that females tend to to aggregate in groups, even in studies done in in people. Girls tend to develop strategies very young to form social groups, uh, and 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 to and to try to uh, befriend others, um, boys tend not to do that as much. I, I don't want to extrapolate from mice to to people, but but you know many of these traits are are conserved very strongly through evolution, and and so um, I think what we're seeing is some type of buffering or erasing of the the effect of stress by by unstressed partners in females specifically. When I'm around someone who's stressed, especially if I know that person, I tend to feel a bit edgy myself. I mean, it may not necessarily be coming out of our anuses, but perhaps there is something coming out of our armpits that possibly could be giving us that, that ability to sense and then react to and become stressed ourselves. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So this, so this is common with people who you're very familiar with. Uh, and I think, you know, our, our brains are really good at integrating many types of sensory modalities. So we pick up visual cues. We, we hear things. Uh, there's, you know, uh, acute smells that we detect. Also other odors that I talked about that we detect subconsciously. But, you know, the moment somebody walks through a door, especially if you know that person, the weight of their footstep, how heavily they slam the door, they might sigh, their posture, all of these things our brain calculates uh, almost immediately and we make a determination. And as part of that determination, there may be a chemical signature. But I think, but I think our brains have evolved to integrate all of this information on the fly very, very quickly. And I think that's, that's what we're doing. It's SAS class time, and today, with all that we've learned about how we can share stress, we're going to find out that the condition itself can be best viewed as an infectious disease. But unlike the traditional concept of influenza or the common cold in which the virus affects everyone, when it comes to sharing stress, the closer you are to someone, the worse the symptoms can get. Our guest teacher is Dr. Lauren Martin, and he is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. He also holds a Canada Research Chair in Translational Pain Research.
How does knowing someone end up making shared stress worse? Feeling stress can be and is often considered an emotional experience. Now, within the context of emotions, for instance, uh, an example of this would be crying babies in the nursery. So one baby cries uh, and then all the babies cry. Right? But it's not only babies, animals uh, and people of all ages are routinely influenced by the emotional states of those around us. Uh, and so uh, a family member's sadness may create a, stat, a state of sadness within ourselves. And just being around happy and positive people can also create some of those same feelings within a group. Right. And so why would knowing someone make us more prone to sharing their stress? Well, emotional contagion is one of the fundamental building blocks for empathy and shared emotional states are stronger and they just happen to be stronger in familiar individuals and those um, individuals with whom we can we can recognize and more easily align ourselves with. Right. And so from an evolutionary perspective, this is highly advantageous because we would want a mechanism in place for recognizing distress within our own group, so our social group, and potentially helping um, and attending to those uh, individuals. Do we have an upper limit when it comes to how stressed we can become and, and, and how we catch it? With respect to an upper limit, you know, I, I think for most things based in physiology, there's going to be an upper limit to, to what we experience and how our bodies process external and internal events, right? But what's really interesting in a lot of the work that we've done is that we've used a very mild social stress. So just meeting uh, or interacting with an unfamiliar individual, someone you don't know, a stranger you might meet on the street, what we find is that this is this interaction is sufficient to block um, some of these emotional contagion uh, responses and emotional contagion, at least in our hands, can be enhanced by blocking the stress response or uh, having, say, strangers interact and, and uh, participate in a shared social experience. What about methods that are more internal, you know, like yoga and, and meditation, maybe serenity now. No, I'm just joking. That, that never works. <laughs> um, I mean, are there ways to be able to help avoid the effects of acquired stress when you know that there is that emotional contagion present? Or really, is it just something we all have to go through as a part of, you know, getting to know and getting to love someone else? Right. And so, and so I think this is where um, something like yoga, meditation, potentially mindfulness may actually help in uh, reducing some of those negative side effects if we're talking specifically about shared stress. And so there's, there's some evidence, not, not out of our lab, but there is some evidence in the, in the literature to suggest that yoga and meditation specifically and learning these type of exercises uh, allow us and they increase our capability for resiliency, particularly to stress, right? And so primarily these type of exercises will allow us not to get stressed by external events that directly affect us. But they also might be um, helpful in, in reducing the, the harmful or the negative effects of acquired stress by being around the, you know, individuals where they, they might be, be stressed and it's sort of an indirect 
indirect effect, right? And so obviously this is going to require some some training and potentially wouldn't work for everyone. But, you know, you don't want to run into a, a situation where you have serenity now and then maybe insanity later. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has helped to calm your nerves about why others tend to stress us out. We want to thank everyone who's been listening. Your support has been absolutely overwhelming. And thanks to you, we've been nominated for Canadian Podcast Award in the category of Outstanding Science and Medicine Series. We'll put the link in the show notes. And if you happen to be a podcaster, please vote for us. If you have any questions or want to make a comment on the show, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at JATetro. For ideas longer than 280 characters, including ideas for the show, you can email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It's helping us to get more people to find the SASCast. Have a great week. And instead of sharing stress, I hope you have a chance to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.